I want to continue this evening talking about the practice that you were introduced to this afternoon, the practice of mudita. Was that fun? Was that good? I hope that you got a taste of the possibility of that practice for really waking us up, uh, bringing some delight into our lives. Because as the Dalai Lama says about this practice of mudita, which is empathetic or sympathetic joy, joy in the happiness of others, if we truly develop it, our chance for happiness goes up by six billion to one. (laughs) Because we're used to viewing uh, happiness as somewhat limited that there's actually a finite supply. And if someone has some, it means I have less, kind of, you know, on a balanced scale. And this practice breaks through that concept, that illusion, that delusion about that. And it can actually um, really open our hearts in a joyful way. So we begin the practice, as you did this afternoon, by choosing someone that we know who's already um, happy in some way, has some good fortune, things are going well for them in their lives, perhaps just in one particular area. We all know that every life has joys and sorrows, but we start with this person and we really see if we can wholeheartedly wish that that happiness can continue. Traditional phrase is, may your good fortune and happiness continue, may they increase and never wane. Or just, I'm happy that you're happy. And what you can see as you do this practice, if you choose to continue with it, it can actually um, transform what may have been subtle or unconscious levels of envy or sense of limitation into a really open and joyful heart. So it really can be quite profound. I remember when I did it uh, intensively, um, during a period of Brahma-Vihara practice where I did all of the Brahma-Viharas intensively for, for a number of days, um, it was delightful. I felt like skipping around the retreat center, which is not a usual thing to see around. So I contained it, but that was the <coughs> internal feeling, especially after just having done a period of intensive compassion practice, which though it has its beauty, definitely has a sense of poignancy or even sadness to it as we open more and more to the suffering. So it's a beautiful balancing to the compassion practice and can be very joyful. And it can really open us up to the possibility of just getting in touch more often, more directly, more simply with this aspect of joy, whether it's our own joy or someone else's joy. And so we start to see these possibilities more. It's like anything, as we tune the attention in, as we awaken a certain um, field of awareness, we notice things that are in attuned with that. And so the possibilities for joy increase. And we, we can get very creative around this field of awakening joy. Sylvia Borstein, who we often teach metta with, has all these great stories about her grandchildren, you know, because she's a loving grandmother. And one of them was so sweet, it just really touched me. One of her grandsons, uh, at quite a young age, came up with this idea called a surprise loving party. And he said he would just decide to have one for someone, his father or his sister, without any, you know, not a birthday or any special occasion, but just bring together 
you know, a present and this care and attention to this person and just have a surprise loving party. It just really touched me. Uh, you know, an obvious one is, is seeing kids at Christmas or birthdays when they're getting lots of presents and just that excitement. We, we mightn't have that so much anymore and just to share in that, that delight that they can have. Sometimes it's a little crazy and almost a little painful, but when there's a purity to it, it's quite beautiful. I'm, uh, I'm actually from Australia. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I go back regularly to visit my family. I have five brothers and sisters, and they've all multiplied and increased the population level of the planet quite well. And so Christmases in our household are very hectic with all those brothers and sisters and all their offspring and the boyfriends and everything that goes along with that. So I often avoid Christmas because it's just too crazy. But I was there a couple of years ago with all the young kids opening their presents and, you know, that bit of frenzy that can go with that. But actually the thing that touched me most, that, that brought all of us the most delight, was when my young niece, Jaya, who was then about seven, was opening the present that my father, her grandfather, had given her. And he's, my father is usually pretty bad at buying presents, like a lot of, you know, older men are, I'll say. Um, <laughs> Not any men that I know very well, they're very good at buying presents. My, my father was never, my mother bought the presents, he never did. But what, what my father did at this Christmas, he went to one of those dollar stores, you know those cheap stores? And he just bought a bag full of stuff and put it in a little, you know, colored bag and that was the present. And so it was nothing in this bag, but she would play, look what I got, a pencil, look what I got, a button. And, you know, because there are all these little things she was just, and she was so excited by this bag of basically little things, much more so than the bigger things that she'd, she'd received. And, we, and it just really tickled us all that this little present really enlivened her so, so much. But as we, so as we practice this quality of mudita, we have to really um, teach ourselves to be happy at things that make other people happy. And that can be a learning, because there are things that make other people happy that mightn't make us happy, but to appreciate that it makes them, them happy. Again, on this trip to Australia, I have some slightly older nieces and nephews, and one evening, my, one of these nieces was going out at night and getting all ready at 11 o'clock at night. And that for me is a nightmare, to be going out somewhere at 11 o'clock. It's like, you know, to be happy that she actually wanted to do that and was looking forward to having a good time. For me, it would be torture. But. And I got this great cartoon from someone that really speaks to this. It's a, it's a cartoon of a father and his two children, and they're ice fishing. So it's this desolate landscape, all these icicles, and they're all bundled up, and the father's there with a rod with this little hole in the ice. And the kids are kind of bundled up and looking at each other. And the father says, it doesn't get any better than this, said Dad. <laughs> the kids who were hearing this for the first time were too stunned to reply. <laughs> for some people, though, ice fishing is it. And I know this to be true because... Uh, Guy and I uh, go every other year or so to Canada. We teach a retreat there, and then we go, get to go hiking in the Rockies, which is beautiful. It's just exquisite up there. We love to go hiking, and we've made these friends who also love to hike, but their idea of what's fun is a little different than ours. 
they have a camper van that they've kitted out. It's got everything, you know, satellite TV and this tiny little space video and a shower and everything, really miniature. Every Friday evening throughout the year, virtually every weekend, they head off into the Rockies. They get up early in the morning. They either hike, bike, or snowshoe 10 or 20 miles to a fishing hole. They fish all day, and then they hike, bike, or snowshoe, whatever, however they got there, back again. So in the winter, they go out and they snow fish, you know, they ice fish or whatever. This is what they do every single weekend. And, you know, we were kind of in an admiration of their enthusiasm for this, but we asked them, why do you do this? Because <laughs> it didn't seem that much fun to me every weekend to be burning, you know, racing out there. But they kind of looked at each other. It was a funny moment. And they, they, they said, I guess we like fish. <laughs> it didn't seem enough of a reason for me, but we had to have Mudita for them and their enjoyment of that lifestyle. Sometimes Mudita is much more easily accessible, though. It doesn't have to involve these big journeys. Just being here at Spirit Rock and being out in nature, even though it mightn't be happiness at someone else's happiness, just the beauty of nature triggers that sense of joy. That's not a, it's not self-centered at all, but it really opens us up. The nature, the clouds moving in and out, all the baby animals that are out now, the little bambies leaping around. And the, have you seen the baby quail? These little bundles of fluff that just kind of spring into the air when you walk by. It just opens our hearts so much. This is a beautiful quality. Really let it in. It's very, very precious. And actually, the more that we open to these different avenues, these different areas for Mudita, the more accessible this will become in an ongoing way. It's really important to see the, the uh, pivotal place that Mudita plays in the Brahma Viharas. We have as our foundation practice metta, the well-wishing, the sense of kindness or good, goodwill. Um, but mudita is often not very highlighted. If you think about it, you hear a lot about metta, you know, bumper stickers everywhere, metta for you, and, you know, I love metta or whatever. And <laughs> compassion, you know, a lot about compassion. The Dalai Lama is always talking about compassion and also equanimity. Mudita isn't that much spoken about kind of in the mainstream of Buddhism or even wherever it might be mentioned. It, even as I looked it up doing some research, uh, some of the scholars noted this fact that, that mudita is kind of downplayed a little bit, but it's really pivotal. You'll see in the sequence, metta, warmth of heart, compassion out of that steadiness of warmth of heart opens to suffering, but we don't want to stay just with the suffering. We need the, the, the openness and the joy of mudita to actually enable us to continue to go back to the suffering, to open to compassion, really necessary to include this facet of joy in your practice. If you're doing a lot of compassion practice, really important that you also cultivate this capacity for appreciation, for beauty and joy. So mudita helps us to stay present for the suffering, continue to open to the suffering. And it also brings um, a warmth to the equanimity. And through its direction of opening to you know, what's going well for someone, what's working for someone, we start to also appreciate their good qualities, and that supports the metta feeling. 
So really very helpful in the, the whole dynamic of the Brahma-vihara practice. Traditionally, it's defined as empathetic or sympathetic joy, joy in the happiness of others. And that's a lot of what we practice with today and what I've already talked about. Really important to cultivate that, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later in the talk. But we feel that it's really also essential to focus on our own capacity for joy, because so many of us have limited that in some way through feelings of pressure to get on in life, that it's not serious enough, that, that we're too busy, for whatever reason it might be. We can feel that it's sort of trivial to focus on joy. You know, Buddhism, I came to Buddhism because I heard that teaching on the truth of suffering, and suffering's where it's at. You know, someone <laughs> said, is it okay to let go of my suffering? You know, if I'm a serious Buddhist, suffering is, you know, what I've got to stick my nose in all the time. You've really got to recognize that, uh, yes, the Buddha taught about suffering and that opening to suffering is a central doorway to what? To the end of suffering. What's the end of suffering? The most sublime kind of happiness. And that this opening to suffering is the other way of coming at ending of suffering. Oh, did I say ending? I lost it. And opening to happiness or joy is actually a direct way to um, contact that truth of suffering and find an end to suffering. The Four Noble Truths, of course, start with that teaching that there is suffering life, it's inherent in being in a human body. Um, we, we can feel this um, teaching as it's all through the, the text. And it had, it, it's, it's so valuable, our willingness to open to suffering. We saw it in the compassion practice. And can sort of even get to the point of view that if you're, if you're not really feeling suffering, you're in some form of denial. You're not serious enough, or you're not a good Buddhist. Or that happiness is just this kind of fleeting, trivial thing that is really very superficial and not where it's at. I'm a true Buddhist. I'm all about suffering. But you have to remember that the Buddha never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. The two went together for him. And that these, these um, experiences of happiness or joy or rapture, different words, different translations of this, this kind of experience are actually really central in the Buddha's teachings. They're one of the factors of enlightenment qualities that lead us to awakening. Lists, I'll mention some lists you mayn't know, but transcendent dependent origination, a very um, valued list that talks about how the mind opens to full awakening. Happiness is a pivotal point in that process. It's a jhanic factor. It's one of the qualities that allow the mind to go into deep states of absorption. So this quality of happiness or joy or bliss or delight is actually woven through the Buddha's teachings and considered to be central. And I've actually really come to love a reframing of the Four Noble Truths. I got this a little bit from another teacher, but I've reworked it myself. And it just shifts things and really complements the mudita practice. And for me, shows how important it is um, to include it in our practice. So as you know, Four Noble Truths, there is suffering. Cause of suffering is grasping, is an end to suffering. There's a path that leads to the end of suffering. 
Well, the reworked version is there is happiness. There's a cause of happiness, which is non-grasping. There's a way to happiness. It's, it's possible to abide in happiness. And there's a way to develop that happiness, which is the Eightfold Path, great teaching on happiness. It's the same teaching looked at from a different angle and just highlighting the importance of cultivating this quality of joy or delight, appreciation in our lives, gratitude, all of these wonderful qualities that mudita can arouse in us. But as we explore this practice, this experience of happiness, it's really important for us to understand what is happiness. I think I might have talked about this a little bit in my opening talk at the beginning of the retreat, really encouraging you to explore directly for yourself. What does it mean when you say over and over again, may I be happy? What is that? What are we talking about here? Because there's a way in which this word has come to seem kind of trite in, in our vocabulary. You know, happy, you know, it's kind of superficial in some way. But it doesn't have to be. It's actually a profound state that is essential for us to have access to. Happiness is actually uh, often used as a translation for the Pali word sukha. And again, many of you probably know the word dukkha. Everyone know dukkha? How many have heard of sukha? Great that you have, but a lot of people haven't. Sukha is just as important. Sukha is happiness. One teacher likes to translate it as um, a sublime contentment of mind and body. So it's not a frivolous kind of skipping about happiness. It's really a state of well-being. And it it's, it's, can be very a, a subtle feeling, uh, but in its essence is this contentment, ease. It's, it's kind of what we're wishing for with that last phrase, that ease of well-being, that sense of contentment, really actually is the coming together of all of the metta phrases. And it's so central that the Dalai Lama wrote a whole book on happiness. I always consider him a one-man publishing industry. If all we had were Dalai Lama books, we'd still have a pretty good library of books. And they're good books. This, the one I'm talking about is called The Art of Happiness. It was on the bestseller list for ages. I'm so glad so many people got to read it. It was a great book that had very traditional Buddhist teachings in it, but about happiness. And he said, talks in that book about how happiness is our birthright. You've probably heard him say many times, our purpose in life is to be happy. And he's not meaning it in that superficial way, but really in this deep sense of a sense of well-being. And he talks a lot about the necessity of working, to, um, working with the difficult states of mind that block our access to happiness, and that this is the foundation of our spiritual practice. And this book was actually written by um, a psychotherapist, I forget his name, but he talks about his early training as a psychotherapist and said that you know, in the training it was all about fixing people, reducing their neuroses and sort of making them normal. That there wasn't anything about making people happy. That was like inconceivable. It was just like get them through the day kind of thing. And it was really revelatory for him to actually conceive of moving in the direction of a great sense of well-being and contentment through this access to happiness. 
Luckily, things have changed now in the psychotherapeutic world. There's actually a huge movement afoot now about positive psychology and cultivating happiness and really seeing how central it is. But it's not, life isn't just about getting by and not being abnormal, but actually full, fulfilling our true potential as human beings with this great degree of appreciation and contentment and well-being. So to really encourage you to explore for yourself what happiness is. You know, I'm sure all of you would very easily and quickly say it isn't that superficial thing about getting a new car or a new computer or a new watch or whatever your things might be that kind of attract you in that way. That's just temporary gratification. And after a while, even the most avid collector gets tired eventually. I read this in the New York Times about, you know, one of these high-flying executives that's making, you know, hundreds of thousands, hundreds and hundreds of thousands a year. And he said he finally had to take a close look at his life, and he decided he wasn't happy. I, was, I wasn't getting the same rush from it as I had in the past, Mr. Bowen recalled. I loved the money, but at a certain moment, I bought the expensive car, the expensive watch, the more expensive house. And I realized, I'm doing a job I'm not sure I want to do so I can buy a more expensive watch. That's a wake-up point in someone's <laughs> life. But so many people don't ever come to that point of, you know, how expensive a watch do you need to tell time? And is it worth, you know, sacrificing your life, your health, your relationships for that? So there's lots of books out on the market now on this theme of happiness, and I'm really glad to see it. It's just spreading, and it's in universities, in psychology departments, um, businesses are looking at it. One of the books that um, I found really helpful is by a couple of guys who actually live in the East Bay, and they've, they've come to Spirit Rock a few times. It's called The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People how we choose to be happy. And they actually went around to all these different um, communities and said, who do you know who's the happiest person? And they waited until a number of people said the same person, and then they went and interviewed that person and found out what is it that that person did that made them happy. And they found people in all kinds of situations. It wasn't like they're all in good situations, happily married with money and kids or whatever our idea of a happy life is. They were all in very varied situations in their life but they've tracked it down to these nine things that they all chose to do, and these people were aware that they were choosing over and over again to be happy when they could have chosen otherwise. So it's a great book. But what, one of the things I like about that book is their definition of happiness, because I think it's so well-rounded, so I'll read it to you. Our definition of happiness is a profound, enduring feeling of contentment, capability, and centeredness. It's a rich sense of well-being that comes from knowing that you can deal productively and creatively with all life offers, both the good and the bad. It's knowing your internal self and responding to your real needs rather than the demands of others. And it's a deep sense of engagement, living in the moment and enjoying life's bounty. I think that's really uh, a great description and it's not about getting stuff. It's about being engaged, being present, being alive. 
obviously I like it because it's got meditation in it, being in the moment, being present for what's happening. It's not about things always being good or happy. It's that sense of um, ability to be with experience as it is. And there's a reason why there's so many books and studies and college courses about happiness at the moment. Because so many people are unhappy. There's so much discontent in this country and in much of the developed world, in fact, much of the world. And especially here in the West where so many people have much more than people ever had in the past. I mean, we, many of us live with so much stuff, yet not happy, not still okay. We have the stuff we thought would do it, we thought would make us happy, and it hasn't. May have for a while, but there's always more. There's always that sense of dissatisfaction. And so there's that study that came out ages ago where they looked at people for whom a variety of people who'd either had a really good thing happen or a really bad thing happen. And the good was often winning the lottery, which, as we know, actually isn't such a good thing usually, but that was their definition of a good thing. And the bad thing was some serious illness or incapacitation, something like that. And for both people, you know, the initial response was happiness for the lottery winners and a lot of sadness, depression, despair, whatever, for the people that were in a really difficult situation. But what they found is as time went on, they returned to the same, they call it happiness set point, that these people were in before this event happened. Even the people that were in a difficult circumstance came back to some level of balance around their situation. Now that's interesting, but it doesn't tell the full picture. Because more study, and I think we're all here because we know it's possible to change your happiness set point. It's what actually this practice does, is really move that level to a greater and greater capacity for joy and happiness. It doesn't change on its own. If we were back in our busy lives without any contact with the Dharma or teachings or any form of wisdom, spirituality, yeah, things don't change on their own. That set point is pretty uh, fixed. But if we bring mindfulness or practice, there's an amazing capacity to change our happiness set point. I read uh, another study about uh, that was done by a British think tank where they evaluated all of the countries of the world according to what they called the Happy Planet Index. And this was to see which countries were the happiest. And they looked at all kinds of things, you know, people's relationships and economic situation and schooling and safety and really a very broad ranging set of criteria were looked at in this study. You may have heard of this study, but anyone have an idea what was the happiest? No. No. Vanuatu. Huh? It's this tiny little place in the Pacific. It's, you know, one of these tropical islands. It's actually a little threatened, I think, by global warming. But 200,000 people live there. It, became, it was the happiest country.
country. And someone, I don't know who they got as a spokesman for this country, said, people are generally happy here because they are satisfied with very little. Life here is about community and family and goodwill to other people. Where do you think the States was on that list? <laughs> 150th. There weren't, there's only uh, so many countries in the planet. I think there's only a couple of hundred, aren't there? So, we've got a way to go on that happiness index. Here's your assignment, should you choose to accept it. Move it up a little. So this study, you know, it's no use having these studies unless they actually teach us something. The question was, again, can we learn from this? that the source of happiness was about community and family and goodwill to other people. Well, I think we're learning about happiness and really doing something very proactively because with intention, we can awaken this capacity for happiness, for goodwill, for contentment. Another person who's really making a difference is a very dear friend of ours, James Barraz. Many of you know him. He'll teaches here regularly, often teaches this retreat. He's doing this amazing class called Awakening Joy. And he's on, I think, about his third iteration of it. It's, he does a monthly class, people have homework, and the whole theme of it is awaken joy in your life. Look for the places joy can arise. And it's really touching people very deeply. It's been so successful in this last round. He does a live class, and then he was just doing it um, by email for people who couldn't attend the class. Well, so many people wanted to attend the class, you had to have two, and I think there's 250 in each one over in Berkeley, meeting once a month. And now they're videoing it and streaming it live, and there's something like a total of 3,000 people taking this class now. Isn't it, it just warms my, it brings me mudita to think both of James teaching it, because I know how much fun he has, but all those people being touched by awakening joy in their life. And this is a quote, from one of the people who's done the class. This course changed my life. I understand now that I have a lot more to do with experiencing joy than I thought. To be joyful, it always seemed like luck or some, set of accident, some sort of accident even. And I felt like I was a victim of life circumstances. I now see that I have more control over how I ex often I experience joy. I can choose to be happy and choose to be unhappy even miserable. Joy seems to occur more often as a result of this realization. Really to get a sense that we're making choices all the time. Why not choose joy, choose happiness, choose openness? And again, this doesn't deny the fact of suffering, and I'll talk more a little bit about that at the end. I'm sure Guy mentioned to you today the fact that Mudita, like every other Brahma Vihara, has a near and a far enemy. The near enemy being that quality of heart that feels a lot like Mudita, but is a somewhat of a distortion of it, and the far enemy being its, its actual opposite. So the near enemy of Mudita is kind of interesting. It's exuberance. It's this frothy excitement that can come a giddy kind of feeling. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. I really encourage you, if you experience it, to use it to actually awaken the sense of delight, but just feel how it's out of balance. You can tell exuberance by usually excessive thinking 
and future thinking. It's kind of denoted by, oh, won't it be great if, or I can't wait until, or let's make more of this, or, you know, it's the bigger, better, sooner, faster kind of mentality. <laughs> That's exuberance. So really use the energy, use that, that uh, delight, but bring it back into the present moment, like all of the Brahmaviharas. We need to keep the mudita in the moment and body-based, so we're really present and able to open to what's here now as far as joy, not some fantasy in the future. The far enemy is envy or jealousy. And this is the very reason why mudita is considered to be one of the harder brahmaviharas to cultivate. It's such a difficult thing to acknowledge in ourselves that we have envy. And we may not even be aware that we do as we think of our good friend and try to delight in their happiness, any little thought of, hmm, why them, not me, or so much, and me not so. <laughs> you know, and it, it just comes. Uh, we, I, I remember thinking of someone I, you know, I really have a lot of appreciation for, and just this little dark cloud would come through of sense of limitation, comparison. It invites the judging mind in. This is, again, the purification, our willingness to acknowledge that it's there. That's where we have to begin with this and feel the story that it's telling us, that envy or jealousy invokes a sense of limitation. It really is the sense of, if they have something, it means that I don't. Again, this balance scale of this, it's like a pie, and whatever slice they take, it makes my slice less really to feel that the, again, the deluded nature of that. Often it comes out of a distortion of what we think someone else's life is like. I remember Guy and I went and traveled somewhere to teach a retreat and we got picked up from the airport by someone we'd never met before. And this woman, she was quite beautiful, very friendly, gracious, and thin. And immediately it's like, hmm, you know, how do some people just get to be thin, you know? And it, I always think, they don't work at it. I have, you know, it's not fair. And I just see this thought going through. She's being very gracious, and then she took us to her home, a beautiful home. You know, one of these homes I love, a craftsman kind of home, not new and flashy, but a little old and wooden and very gracefully furnished, two-story, lovely garden. And I could just feel that kind of, hmm, you know, and I feel my home. It's ni- I have a nice home, but you know, it's not very nicely furnished. We've got a lot of junky old stuff and we're not that concerned. But, and I just saw this. <laughs> Maybe I should have asked him to sit on the side. <laughs> He's the one that's always complaining about our junky old stuff. <laughs> no, you don't want to speak? Anyway, where was I in my story? <laughs> I was at their beautiful home. I just saw these, you know, I was aware of them and I saw how silly they were because I was really appreciating these people. They were very kind. 
And as we got to know them, and they told me the story of their life, they had three daughters. One had been in a very abusive marriage in a foreign country and had to come home and was kind of really trying to be healed from that. Another one got accidentally pregnant to someone she didn't really have a relationship with and had moved in back with her baby. And, you know, it was like, oh, from this sense of, oh, these people are living this perfect life in this beautiful house. The husband was an airline pilot. You know, there was images of foreign travel and everything. And then you feel the reality of their life. And I just needed to really take that in. You know, I, the, the, the thoughts of envy came out of an illusion of what their life was. And it's interesting, in our culture, it actually celebrates envy, tries to cultivate envy. You know, that it's all these celebrity magazines. It, it's kind of crazy. And the drooling nature in which people's lifestyles are written up in. It's like that we should want all that stuff. It actually encourages us to move towards that. Uh, I've seen recently a magazine called Envy. There's a new, very sexy HP computer called Envy and a nightclub called Envy. It's like as though these are good things. Envy is a good thing. And, you know, if you have it, then other people will want it. It's, it's, it's kind of sad. And the, the thing that's really driven me crazy, the women out here will know what I'm talking about, handbags. Have you seen this obsession with big handbags? It's like, what are they on about? A handbag is just something to carry stuff around in. And there'll be these photos, here's so-and-so with her $7,000 handbag. And you're like, crazy. But you know what they're doing in that photograph is these women uh, who are, uh, you know, drawn to that thing are just wanting, wanting to spend that much money on a bag. It's just <laughs> crazy. But it's this culture that, you know, whatever we have isn't enough. There's always something more out there that we should have. And they found through research that people grow accustomed to what they have, however much of it there is. Moreover, having a lot of things is not enough if other people have more. And that's really how we categorize it. doesn't matter what we have. If someone else has more, that flicker of envy will come up. It's really, it's really sad. So I had to turn to a wise sage for some words of wisdom about envy. So this is Swami Beyondananda. <laughs> Anyone know him? He's great. Says the heart, this is a little piece called The Heart of the Matter is the Matter of the Heart. Yes, everyone is equipped to attune to universal wisdom because everyone has been given a heart. And yet, the heart seems to be the last gift we open. The most undeveloped resource on the planet is the treasure inside our own treasured chest. Given all the craziness in the world, maybe we, if we invested in expanding our hearts, we'd have less need to shrink our heads. <laughs> and less of a need to be so all consumed by consumerism. We have learned to spend so much energy pursuing happiness that we never stop to think what would happen if we actually caught it, or rather, if it caught us. With all of this hot pursuit, we have left real happiness in the dust. It is sad indeed that we end up jealous that someone else's happiness might be bigger than our own. Freud called this Happiness envy. 
As the saying goes, money can't buy happiness, although it can buy antidepressants. <laughs> but if you are seeking more out of life than not being depressed, the key to happiness is to grow your own. Is to grow your own. <laughs> Everyone, no, I don't think he meant that actually. <laughs> Every one of us should be asking, "What good am I? What good can I add to the greater goodness?" Maybe if we had greater goodness, we'd need fewer goods. So the first thing about working with this uh, far enemy of envy is really just the willingness to admit that it's there. As I said, it can be humbling, embarrassing even, to admit that we have it. But that's the beginning of really letting go, seeing the, the potential for diminishing that quality. So not to judge us. It just comes. And we've been conditioned a lot to experience this sense of envy through this pressure for judging and comparing that so many of us have grown up with. But to let, it, let, you've let ourselves feel that sense of separation that comes from it, and definitely the sense of lack. As we envy, it diminishes what we have. It, it diminishes our capacity for gratitude or appreciation. And gratitude is one of the most beautiful qualities we can experience, so it's really um, important that we do what we can to cultivate a sense of gratitude by, by working with this tendency to envy. And to really challenge the assumptions that we have when we feel envious about someone else or something else. You know, that if they have it, I can't. They, they have more of it, I have less. Or having it would make me happy. Again, I have another friend, a beautiful person, I love her dearly, she has this wonderful house, something about houses in these things, but you know, houses are big things that we can kind of be impressed by. She has this gorgeous house, it's beautiful, it's light, it's spacious, it's elegant, but very livable, and every time I go there, I say, oh, it would be lovely to live in this house, I'd love to live in this house, she's very generous with her house, but I was just speaking to her recently, and she said, I just came back from a two-week vacation in this tiny little cottage, and I came back, and I was so happy there, and I came back to this big house, and I thought, what on earth am I doing in this huge house? And, you know, anything that we think is what we want has its limitations. It isn't actually going to be the source of our happiness. So really being willing to take up these reflections when you feel that constriction of envy arising in you. Really feel it and see that happiness isn't to be found by getting something that's out there that we don't have right now. It's really, as Swami Beyondananda says, discovering our own goodness and capacity for goodness. So we need to be on the lookout for joy, for happiness. It's all around. We just need to pay attention in the right way. And as I said, to really reflect on what makes you happy and why, and especially the simple things in life. Um, my sister recently sent me a photo of my niece, the same one that was opening the presents, Jaya, uh, meditating because they had gotten a free yoga CD in their newspaper, which is the whole city, three million people got this free CD of yoga, which I thought was a great thing to do. And so all these people are taking up yoga and at the end they sit and meditate. So she sent me this photo of this little seven-year-old girl sitting in this very good posture meditating just made me so happy 
to see that. I'm sure she hasn't kept it up, but some seed has been planted in her. And on my screensaver, every now and then that photo comes up. And it just makes me happy. Uh, uh, Last year, I think it was, Guy and I spent a few days in New York. We had been teaching on the East Coast and had a few uh, spare days. And I haven't spent much time in New York. And I went to MoMA for the first time. And it just made me so happy to see all these paintings that I had seen in pictures, in books, and maybe slides or whatever. I just went around smiling, seeing, you know, Monet's and Rousseau's and Van Gogh's. There was just, it just touched, there was a delight there. And I listened to the audio where there was, you know, I got a lot more into what was um, the experience of the painter at the time and sort of feeling, you know, I know that many artists have difficult lives, but just feeling the power of that creative force, getting in touch with that. And one of the things on the audio was a description from someone seeing Monet's water lily painting series, those, that big triptych, you know, that's huge, for the first time back in the 1800s, whenever that was. I mean, now it's kind of blasé. I mean, we had a shower curtain with Monet's water lilies on. <laughs> Not the same. Imagine seeing that for the first time. And this person talked about that transcendent quality of going into this room with these huge paintings. And I got a little hit from that and just being in their presence, in the real presence of those paintings. It just opened my heart so much. And of course, these days with the internet, lots of stuff comes across, as you know, I'm sure you all get it, you know, of varying qualities. But every now and then, doesn't someone send you something that really touches you? And just the photos of animals or beautiful scenes of nature, you know, you have to be selective in the ones you look at. I tend to look at them because I just see what, you know, what's there. Some of them are great. Some of them really lift my heart. The hugging one, free hugs, did people see that? That was great. My favorite that just came across the other day is, where the hell is Matt? Anyone seen that? The dancing guy. It's always hard to describe, but he's such a kick. It's this kind of dumpy looking guy. He's nice looking, but he's a little doughy. And he just goes to different places. He travels all over the world. And this video is just shot after shot of him in these exotic locales doing this totally dorky dance where he's going like, it's like an Irish jig. He's, you know, he says, I'm a bad dancer. And it's just shot after shot after shot. It just tickles me. But the first one, he just did it on his own. And then he's Sutton, it's become a livelihood for him. And now he did this one where at first he's on his own, these beautiful locales. And there's this great one where he's with these Bollywood Indian dancers. They're beautiful women doing this very elegant dance. And he's doing this little jig. But then all of a sudden on cue, they do this kind of movement together. It, it just really lifts me up. But then what he did in this video is he got other people to come and join him dancing. So at first he's alone, and then gradually in all these different shots, these people are coming and coming. And there's just this rush of exuberance as all these people join in dancing. It, it's just funny. I, I just like it. And I know, you know, Guy and I have separate offices, and, but often I wander back to see what he's doing. And if I go in there and he's smiling, I know what he's looking at. Because <laughs> we both do it to, to, you know, if we're working away, working away, and then you just need a break. Anyone like I can has cheeseburger? No, it's a, it's, a, it's a secret. Okay, now you know. I can has cheeseburger. What they do is they take pictures of usually cats, and we have a cat. I think I've mentioned our cat. Pictures of cats usually, 
in funny situations and put these really strange little funny things on them. And it doesn't sound like very much, but it's very funny and it just picks you up. You know, go and look at Eichen has cheeseburger. It's a whole culture out there of Eichen has cheeseburger. I can has a bad English cheeseburger. And what these cats all speak, it's called lolcats, and they speak in lolcat language. So it's all very bad grammar. So can you think of a good example? I didn't get one. It's not going to give me one. Anyway, lolcats. Another source of happiness for you, if you like it. So we look for them, you know, and when they're there, just really let it in. So stuff like that, it just, it just wakes us up. It, it breaks up the day, it gives a smile, and then the next person we see, we can smile at them. We can be happy. It's, it's important. But this opening to joy, as delightful as it is, doesn't mean that we let go of wisdom. It actually is a doorway to wisdom. We actually can see how transforming the suffering an opening to the suffering leads us to more suffering. How opening to these truths about impermanence, about the unsatisfactory nature of the material world and experience is actually a doorway to happiness, brings joy. Ajahn Chah has this great teaching, many of you probably know, about finding joy in the insubstantiality of things. He says, Ajahn Chah is a Thai forest meditation master. How can you find right understanding? Actually, I should say about Eichen has cheeseburger. A lot of people don't like it, but we've, I've tried to show it to people. I, you didn't like it, did Shada doesn't like it. Don't blame me if you don't find it funny. Back to Ajahn Chah. In has happiness, joy, and wisdom. Here's some wisdom. <laughs> How can you find right understanding? I can answer you simply by using this glass of water I am holding. It appears to us as clean and useful, something to drink from and keep for a long time. Right understanding is to see this as a broken glass, as if it had already been shattered. Sooner or later, it will be shattered. If you keep this understanding while you are using it, that it is all, all it is is a combination of elements which come together in this form and then break apart, then no matter what happens to the glass, you will have no problem. This body is like the glass. It is also going to break apart and die. You have to understand that. Yet when you do, it doesn't mean that you should go and kill yourself, just as you shouldn't take the glass and break it or throw it away. The glass is something to use until it falls apart in its own natural way. In the same way, the body is a vehicle to use until it goes its own way. Your task is to see what the natural way of things is. This understanding can make you free in all the changing circumstances of the entire world. So it really is a choice that we have, how we relate to things, our experiences, the beautiful ones and the difficult ones, and to see that we're making choices all the time. And we can choose happiness. We can choose joy. Not to deny suffering. And I'm not meaning in that to you know, diminish 
all of the deeper experiences we might have, but knowing there's that possibility, that choice, that the, the tendency we might have to be, have a sense of contraction or limitation, of lack, of insufficiency, it's a choice. And we can choose contentment and well-being and openness and connection. And I'll just finish with one of my favorite poems, because again, it's an animal poem. It's called A Blessing. Just off the highway to Rochester, Minnesota, twilight bounced softly forth on the grass, and the eyes of those two Indian ponies darken with kindness. They have come gladly out of the willows to welcome my friend and me. We step over the barbed wire into the pasture, where they have been grazing all day alone. They ripple tensely. They can hardly contain their happiness that we have come. They bow shyly as wet swans. They love each other. There is no loneliness like theirs. At home once more, they begin munching the young tufts of spring in the darkness. I would like to hold the slenderer one in my arms, for she has walked over to me and nuzzled my left hand. She is black and white, her mane falls wild on her forehead, and the light breeze moves me to caress her long ear that is delicate as the skin over a girl's wrist. Suddenly I realize that if I, if I stepped out of my body, I would break into blossom. So let's just sit together for a moment. Happiness and good fortune continue. May it increase and never wane. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.